Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. So we got an impeachment trial going on. We're going to talk about that. Neera Tandon is uh, in the midst of her hearing to be confirmed for OMB director, Office of Management and Budget. It's actually a very powerful position. Um, So we're going to talk about those things. These are probably on the top of everybody's mind if they're a political junkie and they're following the ins and outs and the daily hullabaloo. Um, But there's plenty of other stuff in the show as well. Julian Assange will be talking about the dog shampoo guy who blew up on Twitter and now he can't stop digging a deeper hole for himself. Um, Interesting thing on QAnon that I want to discuss. And later on, the terrible reversal of a decision in South Dakota about weed and Fox and Friends gets mad over the dumbest shit. And Joe Biden 100% has the authority to eliminate student loan debt. The question is, will he do it? Um, The answer is probably not, because he's already hedging and pawning off responsibility. But there will be no question that, indeed, he has the right, he has the ability. Um, And if he doesn't do it, it's because he's choosing not to do it. Okay, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And like I said, we're going to do that with the issue of impeachment. Here we go. So the impeachment trial in the Senate has officially started. Um, 
I want to show you part of what Representative Raskin said in his testimony against Trump uh, in his speech here. The defense went viral, not because it was good, but because it was historically terrible. The attorney seemed like he was drunk. He was rambling. He couldn't stay on point. He was attempting to make the argument that it's unconstitutional to even have an impeachment trial right now because Trump is out of office. Um, He didn't come close to making an argument on that. So everybody was sort of making fun of him. I got uh, some stuff later on that exact issue. The Republican response to it has been super interesting. But let me show you some of what Representative Raskin said here. President Trump has sent his lawyers here today to try to stop the Senate from hearing the facts of this case. They want to call the trial over before any evidence is even introduced. Their argument is that if you commit an impeachable offense in your last few weeks in office, you do it with constitutional impunity. You get away with it. In other words, conduct that would be a high crime and misdemeanor in your first year as president, in your second year as president, in your third year as president, and for the vast majority of your fourth year as president, you can suddenly do in your last few weeks in office without facing any constitutional accountability at all. This would create a brand new January exception to the Constitution of the United States of America. A January exception. And everyone can see immediately why this is so dangerous. It's an invitation to the president to take his best shot at anything he may want to do on his way out the door, including using violent means to lock that door to hang on to the Oval Office at all costs, and to block the peaceful transfer of power. In other words, the January exception is an invitation to our founders' worst nightmare. And if we buy this radical argument that President Trump's lawyers advance, we risk allowing January 6th to become our future. So they didn't buy the argument, and the case is going to proceed. Um, I think that that's correct. I think they're right in that. However, I will say um, we are being a little silly and a little slippery in this entire conversation because he's right. He's technically correct. It's a letter of the law versus spirit of the law type thing. And, yeah, if you commit an impeachable offense on your last day in office, it's still an impeachable offense. And you can get impeached for it. So it is, of course it's accurate, of course it's true that you can't have an exception for any time during a president's term. However, if the ultimate goal of impeachment, especially when people just casually, colloquially talk about it, if the ultimate goal is you want to impeach a president to remove them from office, which it is, that is the ultimate goal of it, well, 
let's not pretend like it doesn't change the calculation if Trump is out of office. He's out of office. So, of course, it changes the calculation. It absolutely does. If the ultimate prize is we got to get this fucker out of there and he's already out of there, then don't act like this is anything other than really a virtue signaling exercise. Now, again, on the merits, you're correct. You're correct on the merits. An impeachable offense is an impeachable offense, and it doesn't matter if you do it on day one or the very last day of your presidency. So, you know, you're not going to get me to argue that they're wrong. But what I am going to say is, it is a little bit of a technicality bullshit type thing, and stop pretending like this isn't just a giant virtue signaling exercise, because he's already gone. So this is the Democrats going, "Ah, we really dislike this guy, Trump. He's so bad. He's really bad. I'm against him. Are you against him? I'm totally against him. Are you against him? We're all against him. And guess what? The public doesn't like him right now. We agree with the public. The public agrees with us. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't we so the party of the people? Don't you you guys think we're totally fighting for you here? Mm, You're just doing what is effectively high-minded virtue signaling. And the other point is, he's talking about like, oh, we can't allow somebody to get away with crimes in their last month in office. Bitch, you guys allow presidents to get away with crimes in the middle of their term. I've seen it time and time again. You didn't impeach George W. Bush. You didn't impeach Dick Cheney. You know, they were doing torture and and war crimes and honestly things just as bad, if not worse, than Donald Trump, albeit different. But of course they did high crimes and misdemeanors in office. Of course they did. So you, it's very selective in how they enforce it. It really is. I mean, the other point is, as we've made a million times, is they really focus more on, like, Russiagate and the Ukraine phone call for the last impeachment. And, like, I'm sitting here watching this and going, you have a much more open and shut case on emoluments, how he's taking money from Saudi Arabia through his D.C. hotel, and then he's giving them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal and helping them carry out a genocide in Yemen. That story has everything. It's corruption. Corruption leading to facilitating a genocide. God damn it, that's an amazing story. It's a huge story. They totally let that one slide. Totally let that one slide. No impeachment over that. Impeachment over some other silly shit. And now it's the virtue signaling. This last, his last month in office, he did something wrong. There need to be consequences. By the way, I agree that there need to be consequences. But make them real. So what's a non-virtue signaling exercise to go after Trump for what he did with the attempted insurrection? It's very simple. Use the 14th Amendment to ban him from ever holding public office again. You can do that. And guess what? You actually have a shot of getting that one through. Because you just need a simple majority in the House, which you're going to get. And then in terms of the Senate, I originally thought it was 51. No, you need 60 votes in order to get it. But guess what? 60 votes is a lot less than what you need for impeachment. What do you need for impeachment? 67, 68, something like that? So for impeachment, you're not gonna, you don't have the numbers. It doesn't even matter how bad Trump's people botch his defense. They're going to win. They're going to win. So why would you take on that fight when you could take on a fight? You have a shot of winning. Like, you know, maybe you'll fall just short. Maybe you'll get 58 or 59 votes and you need the 60 to ban him from office through using the 14th Amendment. But at least you have a snowball's chance in hell in that one. Like, 
you might actually be able to ban him from ever holding office again. And that is a fair and just punishment, in my estimation, for what happened with the attempted insurrection. When he was talking out of both sides of his mouth, he was egging them on while at the same time pretending to be distancing himself from them. So I guess my point is, yes, Democrats, you're correct. If somebody, if a president commits an impeachable offense in the last month in office, it's still an impeachable offense. But stop pretending like this shit makes you a hero. It's the ultimate Democratic move to like, you know, to, to act like this is brave when he's already out of office. So the main victory of what impeachment would bring is now moot. It's a moot point. So what are you doing? We know what they're doing. And, and don't pretend like you don't. It is a giant virtue signaling exercise. And the problem, of course, is when you have a pandemic and a depression, you should be focusing more on the pandemic and the depression. That is correct policy and correct politics, where the American people look at that and say, well, these guys are serious. They're fighting for me. Whereas, you know, when, when it comes to impeachment, he's already gone, son. He's already gone. And so, you know, and what happens, by the way, when you lose, what are you going to do then? Are, is, are these guys going to pretend to be tough guys and be like, well, we still need to find ways to go after him, and maybe we should try to go after him in other ways. He's gone. Focus on the business of the people. At some point, you got to let it go. We understand. You guys hate Trump. Trump's unpopular right now. Got it. But www.movealongski.com, son. Let's go here. Let's go. Again, you're right. You're technically correct. Of course, you can go after him for this. But he's already out of office. So if you're going to go after him in any way, shape, or form, make it so that there's real consequences and you have a chance of winning, like banning him from office, like, for example, the uh, New York case against Trump's businesses right now, which might yield some important stuff. So that's a real way to go after him. Right now, just don't, don't act like this is anything other than a virtue signaling exercise. I think that that's what annoys me the most is that when people are pretending like it's more than that, this is not more than that. So all like the Grand, self-aggrandizing tweets you see about heroes taking on Trump. It's, he's gone. He's fucking gone. Don't pat yourself on the back too hard. It's just sad to see that, like, this is where you're going to put all, all your effort in your fight, where, you know, there are so many other issues that you should be going to the mat on, and they're not. And so it's always, like, it's always the easiest thing that they choose, and then they, like, cloak it as if they're heroes. And it's like, Pipe down, son. Okay, next. Now I'm going to show you some of the Republican response on this. Republican response. Republican Senator Cassidy ripped the Trump legal team and flipped his vote on impeachment in the sense that he said it is constitutional to have the trial and the trial should proceed. Listen to what he said about Trump's defense. Listen to it. It speaks for itself. It was disorganized, random, had nothing. They talked about many things, but they didn't talk about the issue at hand. And so if, uh, if you, if I'm an impartial juror, and I'm trying to make a decision based upon uh, the facts as presented on this issue. What happened? 
house managers did a much better job. That is not the issue at hand. The issue at hand is, is it constitutional to impeach a president who's left office? And the House managers made a compelling, cogent case, and the president's team did not. It speaks for itself. I think it's strong enough, but that's not related to why I made my decision. Did you address the past president of, you know, the William Bell Capitol? They did. The Trump's team? The Trump's team. Yeah. You know, I took notes. I always take notes. Uh, but at one point, I leaned over to Cruz, and I said, Cruz, are they talking to the point at hand? He goes, not now. Uh, so, you know, because I'm thinking, maybe I'm missing something. Um, um, and, again, if I'm there as an impartial juror, uh, respecting my oath of office to uphold the Constitution of the United States, and one side makes the argument and the other side does everything but make the argument, then to live with myself, I make that vote. I've always said I'm approaching this as an impartial juror, and that's what I mean. She's going to Everything about this story is perfect, in my opinion, because he's right. You know, if you saw any of the seemingly drunk, random defense of the Trump people, they couldn't stay on topic at all. They were all over the place. Um, and so a Republican senator saying it was, quote, disorganized, random. He didn't talk about the topic at hand. Leaned over to Ted Cruz and talked about that. And even Ted Cruz was like, yeah, they're not focusing on the topic at hand. So amazing, amazing. But ultimately, this is, this is the perfect Washington story because you know what? the Republicans are going to win anyway. So it's true that Cassidy flipped his vote. There were like six Republicans or something like that who said the case can and should proceed. In other words, it's, in other words, it's constitutional to have an impeachment trial after a president is already out of office. Um, so the case is going to proceed. But ultimately, it's a foregone conclusion. This thing is already over. We know as a matter of fact you're not going to get the 16, 17, whatever it is, Republican votes that you need in order to impeach Trump. So it, even though President Trump's team is lazy, stupid, not on topic, sad, they're like the D team, even though that's all true, they're going to win. They're going to win. And that is also just, it just epitomizes democratic politics, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it really does. Like... They're patting themselves on the back in virtue signaling and talking about the win that the trial can proceed. And did you see that poignant video that we played which showed the insurrection? Did you hear the arguments I made that sounded really official and really special and were on point? And all that is going to come to naught. It's going to come to naught. You know? And the frustrating thing is, it's not like there aren't ways in which you can fight and maybe win. Because there are. I told you. If you use the 14th Amendment instead of trying impeachment, you might actually get the numbers, 60, to ban Trump from ever holding office again. Now, you might fall just short, but it's a fight worth taking on because there's actually a prayer. So you could punish him that way, you know, or you could accept the fact that he's gone and then lean into the fights that are more important, which of course are, you know, minimum wage fight and the COVID relief bill and the $2,000 checks and health care in the middle of a pandemic. 
So you should and could put all your time and energy and effort in the things that can yield results and that matter. But instead, the thing that's, um, you know, the thing that's going to rule the day is the virtue signaling exercise where you're going to lose no matter what. It's just, it's perfect democratic politics. They already knew going into it that they were going to lose. And they're still like patting themselves on the back as if like anything's being accomplished. It's not, I hate to tell you. And I'm getting like, I, I am at the point where I need to stay off Twitter because when I see the self-aggrandizing narcissistic tweets of Democrats who think they're doing something here, I want to shove a fork in my eye. It's this like learned helplessness of being comfortable in your loserdom because I don't know about you guys, but where I'm from, we, uh, the goal is to actually win and do everything we can to actually win. And if this is a foregone conclusion, it's a waste of time. So Congrats on your virtue signaling exercise. Uh, It's not going to get anywhere. I sincerely believe you would have had a better chance of forcing through Medicare for all than you would have getting this impeachment through. I sincerely believe that. I get it. It's a long battle. It's an uphill battle. You're going to have to flip a lot of votes. But you can get enough grassroots energy and support to really scare the shit out of Democratic politicians, to force a lot of them to vote for it. And even if Medicare for All failed in the short term, I think you could have sparked such a movement that it would win in the long term, in the near future. Um, This, I I don't see any of that happening. This is Democrats going to lose and then tuck their tail between their legs and go away and maybe also sort of pretend that they won even though they didn't. So virtue signal galore. And even in a situation where the Democrats had a much better argument, a much better team, stayed on message, you're convincing some Republicans to agree on the initial point of the trial should proceed. Even with all of that, you're still going to lose. <laughs> so it's just, it's just too perfect. It's, just, it's too on point and on the nose for what Washington, D.C. has become and for what the current political moment is. And people are way too comfortable with this stuff. You know, they're way too comfortable with a, a performative, only a performative left. And unfortunately, it's not even performative on the right issues. It's performative on the things that are less significant and less important. And that's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Fox News and their minimum wage bullshit. Fox News ripped the idea of a minimum wage increase, and you have Art Laffer here, the world's worst economist, call it, quote, ridiculous. Take a look. Uh, I think where we really face the problem is 2022 on uh, that's where the growth rates are going to be great, bad, badly damaged by these stimulus packages and all the overhang, all the regulations of $15 minimum wage. How ridiculous can that be? Forty percent of the people in Kentucky, uh, uh, working people in Kentucky, are $15 or less. I mean, you're going to kill segments of the economy. Well, that's going to make it much more expensive for businesses to operate, obviously, to, to have to pay Everywhere. that out. And it will hurt them, probably lead them to cut jobs. Uh, which is, of course, not the intent. And by, cu- by regions of the country, 
do, Maria. It's really very, very bad. It may not be so bad in San Francisco and New York City, but I'll tell you, in Louisville and some of the mountain areas, it's going to be terrible. In the inner cities, it's going to be awful. And it goes against the most yeah. vulnerable people, the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised, the young. It just ruins their prospects for a better life. So his argument is, I'm against raising the minimum wage because it would ruin your prospects for a better life. I care so much about the poor and minorities that I'm against raising the minimum wage. That's why, because I care about people at the bottom of the economic ladder. Have you ever heard a worse argument than that? I mean, this guy is so full of shit, it's coming out of his ears. He called a, a, a minimum wage increase, a $15 minimum wage, quote, ridiculous. He also said that growth is going to go down because of the stimulus. I mean, that, it, that just shows his conception of economics is exactly backwards. Like, he couldn't be more wrong. We know, as a matter of fact, and from looking at history, no, when there's an economic downturn and you do stimulus spending, then growth goes up. You, you do better. You know, think of the Great Depression and the New Deal. What happened? The government is the spender of last resort and did a jobs program and made it so that the economy rebounded. Even World War II and the spending around World War II, that was stimulus. So growth went up. He makes it seem like, no, that's going to that's going to make it go in the other direction. No, if you do nothing, if you do austerity politics, it goes in the wrong direction. I mean, there's never been a person more wrong on economics than Art Laffer at every step of his life. And he's been the person who is a top advisor to a lot of the Republican presidents. I think going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. Um, You know, he's the trickle down economics guy. Couldn't be more wrong. Now, Uh, To go back to the minimum wage here, 17 million workers would be helped by it. 17 million workers. 900,000 would be lifted out of poverty. And that's, again, the official poverty line. Um, I I would argue that the actual poverty line is higher than what they say it is. So um, these numbers are from the CBO, and they're so, so questionable. I, I don't know if I'd take them to the bank, but even according to their numbers, 17 million workers helped, 900,000 lifted out of poverty. The other thing is, and this is the part that's not discussed nearly enough, you actually would shrink government programs if you raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Why? Because a lot of those programs that exist for the people at the bottom of the economic ladder, um, people wouldn't need to use those programs anymore. Millions more people wouldn't need to use those programs because right now if you're making a starvation wage, somebody's got to make up the difference, and so you go to the government for effectively whatever it is, SNAP, welfare, whatever, to help you pay the bills. And so if you're forcing these big corporations to pay $15 an hour to pay a living wage, then people don't qualify for and don't need anymore a lot of these programs which are for the poorest among us. And so there would be a net shrink, a net you know, reduction in the size of government. And that's something that Art Laffer should support because – you know, he says he's a small government conservative. If you, want to, if you want to shrink government, increase the minimum wage is definitely one way to do that because then you could make these, um, 
these programs that support people a little smaller. So, but again, that, of course, that doesn't factor into his thinking because he cares more. He won't say this part, but the reality is the big corporations don't want to raise the wage by and large, and he's going to side with those big corporations because the entire, you know, Republican establishment in Washington, D.C., their whole existence is just to do propaganda for and support corporate America, the billionaire class, the owner class, the CEOs. And so that's the real concern here. The real concern is I I care more about padding the bottom line for these giant corporations, and I know that they don't want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, so I'm going to take that side as well. You know, and the other thing is, you would think that, so if, if that was a real concern of his, oh my God, I'm afraid of job loss, um, why wouldn't he support another way of addressing that problem? So if you think that a, an increase in the minimum wage is going to lead to job loss, why wouldn't Art Laffer say, well, we should raise the minimum wage to a living wage, it should be 15, but the government should subsidize, you know, uh, the businesses that are going to fire people so that they can keep those people on the payroll. Why wouldn't he say that? Why wouldn't he say that? You know, because his argument is, oh, my God, it might lead to job loss. Therefore, we need to keep paying people starvation wages, which is a terrible idea, obviously. The other thing is, if you really were concerned about job loss in various places, another way to address that problem is an idea I've talked about on the show before, which is you can craft a federal law on the minimum wage that makes it a living wage in every county in the United States of America. And so in rural Wyoming, it might be $9.25. That might be the living wage. And in New York, it might be $24.50. So if you crafted it that way, that's another way to address the problem and not have as much job loss. But he doesn't approach it that way because he wants to keep paying starvation wages. He wants to make it so that we still have an underclass that works full time and doesn't make enough money to survive. And there's another good point that was made by Dan Price on this. He said that, so if we take the CBO numbers and we're going to lose a million jobs or so as a result of raising the minimum wage to a living wage, you have to understand that some of those jobs that are going to be lost are actually second jobs for people. They're second jobs. So somebody could work two jobs and make $7.25 an hour at each of those jobs. And then, so they lose one of those jobs when you raise the minimum wage to a living wage. And now they're working one job and they're getting paid more, $15 an hour. So is it really the worst thing in the world to get rid of that kind of a job, a job that pays a starvation wage, and to make it so that this person can have an easier life and they get paid better and they don't have to work as many hours? I mean, you know, you could argue if there was ever such thing as like a moral and ethical job loss, well, fuck, right? Like the details of that are kind of overwhelming, are they not? And then the final point is, what they're saying is not even necessarily true, okay? Is it possible that there's some uptick in unemployment if you raise the minimum wage to a living wage? Yeah, it's possible, for sure. There's also studies on the other side of that which say that doesn't happen. And there's also the anecdotal evidence of what it's like in countries that effectively have a living wage right now. The example we like to give on the show is Australia. In Australia, they have about a $15 in in U.S. dollars minimum wage, and their unemployment rate is the exact same as ours. Think about that. So they effectively pay a $15 minimum wage, a living wage, and their unemployment rate's the same as ours. So what happened? I thought you guys were going to tell me that it's 
going to lead to extreme job loss and it'll be, you know, it'll lead to a dystopian hellscape future. That didn't manifest. It didn't manifest in Australia. It doesn't manifest in the Scandinavian countries. And by the way, in the Scandinavian countries, they don't even have a minimum wage because most people are unionized. And if they're unionized, they make even more than what would be a minimum wage. And is there, you know, extreme job loss and extreme unemployment in a lot of these countries respectively? No. No, there are places in the U.S., in the U.S., that already have a $15 minimum wage. And is there extreme job loss in those places that's totally not comparable to other places around the U.S.? No, there isn't. So even if there was an increase in unemployment, you could say it's negligible. And the net good of paying a living wage, lifting so many people out of poverty, it's worth it, man. It's worth it. I, I really do think as a matter of principle, you, we shouldn't have a situation where you could work a full-time job and not make enough money to survive. If you're wor- working a full-time job, you should be able to make enough money to survive, period. So, of course, Fox News is going to go strong against uh, raising the minimum wage to a living wage. Again, he said it's, quote, ridiculous. And he said it, it ruins people's prospects for a better life. Imagine that. Raising wages for people at the bottom ruins their prospects for a better life. Absurd. And by the way, the other thing is the argument they make that this is only like kids who make the minimum wage. Bullshit. There are plenty of people who that is their job. And they simply don't care about these people. They think that if you're earning really low wages, you just deserve it. Like you just deserve to make a starvation wage, you know? then you definitely can't say this is a meritocracy. If you have people who work full-time and bust their ass and still make, don't make enough money to survive, you can't then turn around and say, well, just work harder. If you just work harder, you'll, you'll make it and you'll go far. These people literally argue that you should be able to work full-time and not make enough money to survive. What do you mean just work harder? What do you mean you value work? That quite literally proves you do not value work. If you valued work, you'd want to pay people at least a living wage if they work full-time. So it's all bullshit, and it's all just working backwards from their conclusion that the corporations are always right, the billionaires are always right, and if that means you have to make a starvation wage, so be it. So this is so everybody understands, if anybody has fallen into that trap of thinking the Republicans or Fox News or whatever are working class, you know, are for the working class, hilarious, laugh along with me. Okay, next. Joe Biden is unfortunately following in Trump's footsteps in one of the worst possible ways. Reuters says that the Biden administration plans to continue to seek extradition of WikiLeaks Assange. He's going to do the exact same thing that Trump was doing. The exact same thing. This is inexcusable. And we need every single nominally progressive member of the House and member of the Senate to speak the fuck up. Because this is a direct threat to the First Amendment and press freedoms. 
It's not, you don't even need to read between the lines or have an interpretation of it. No. Point blank period, this is a direct threat to the First Amendment and to freedom of the press. That's exactly what this is. You gave Trump or you give Biden the authority to crack down on somebody like Julian Assange, you're giving the government the green light to go after anybody who publishes things that they don't like in the media. So it is the definition of authoritarianism. That's what it is. So I want to see every Justice Democrat, every member of the squad, Bernie Sanders, whatever other nominally left senators there are, if you could say there are any, I want to see all of them, the libertarian-leaning ones. So we're going to need the Amashes and the Rand Pauls. Every single one should be speaking up in support of Julian Assange. You're playing with fucking fire here. This isn't just a partisan issue. This is a, a press freedom issue. It's a constitutional issue. It's a First Amendment issue. Because remember, we all know why they're throwing the book at Julian Assange. And it's got everything to do with the fact that he exposed war crimes. That's what it's about. I've told the story a million times on air, and I'm sure all of you know it, but Chelsea Manning basically has a conscience and said, oh my God, our soldiers are committing war crimes in Iraq, and I have video of it. They killed civilians and then circled around and killed the first responders and were laughing about it. That video was given to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, and he released it. You want to know why? Because that's what a journalist does. That's what somebody who has a conscience does. This is what you do. But what's the argument against them? Oh, this information was like top secret or classified or whatever the fuck because of something, something, national security. So shut your brain off and you're not allowed to release that. This is the exact same shit that was said during the Vietnam War with the Pentagon Papers when we eventually learned that the military were using Agent Orange and Napalm and massacring innocent villagers in random villages. That's what we learned about Vietnam. And the public had a right to know that. Why? Because they're doing these things, these war crimes, in our name, with our tax money. Do you want your tax money going to murdering innocent people? Is that what you want? I didn't think so. So how do, you, how do you change it? Well, you learn about it through this thing called the press, and then you pressure your politicians to change it. That's what it was in Vietnam. So now we're talking about the exact same principle, the exact same thing when it comes to the Iraq war. And Julian Assange, the person who gave us this information, is a political prisoner. If you take the same set of facts and you say, Russia has a political prisoner. Like now, Navalny, everybody's talking about. There's a difference in the sense that you can't do dick about Navalny. You're not, a, you're not a citizen of Russia. You're a citizen of the United States of America, for the most part, probably, if you're watching this. So you actually can, to some extent, even if it's a tiny amount, influence your own government. Or is it because our political prisoners don't count? And I say they're not political prisoners because it makes me feel good. But their political prisoners do count. Get the fuck out of here. How babyish, how childish is this notion? The guy exposed war crimes. The First Amendment protects the press to do things like that. And Trump threw the book at him, and now Biden's throwing the book at him. 
and they want to make an example of him. Why? So that everybody learns their lesson and nobody in the future exposes war crimes. The U.S. government wants to be able to get away with whatever the hell they want to get away with, and they don't want the measly public getting involved telling them to act in a more ethical or moral or just or legal way. So that's what's going on here. Where's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Where's Ilhan Omar? Where's Rashida Tlaib? Where's Ro Khanna? Where's Mark Pocan? Where's Bernie Sanders? Where's Sherrod Brown? Where's Elizabeth Warren? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And while we're at it, why aren't you talking about Edward Snowden? Why aren't you telling Biden to pardon Edward Snowden and Julian Assange? Instead, Biden goes in the other direction, and he said, not only am I not pardoning Assange, I'm going to continue to throw the book at him just like Trump did. Where are you? Or do you just not care about the First Amendment and about press freedom? Do you just not care about it? And why don't you care about it? Is it because you're in the power circles now? So you, now you believe the bullshit arguments about, no, nah, it's moral and just when we are authoritarian and crack down on journalists. Yes. <laughs> it's the moral thing to do. Yes. <laughs> what is it? Or are you just lazy and ignorant on the issue? What is it? Why are you not talking? It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. There's no excuse to sit back while the government turns towards authoritarianism. And we're not going to say anything. We're not going to voice objection to it. We're not going to apply pressure. Nothing. What a sick joke. Why is it on like a small group of online leftists to bring this up and libertarians as well? Why? Why is it on us? Why is it on us to have to do it? When we're talking about the First Amendment and freedom of speech and freedom of, of the press, this is the Constitution and it's on us. It's a sick joke, man. It's a sick joke. They need, to, they need to put this to an end. They do. They absolutely do. Not only does he need to not throw the book at him, pardon Assange, pardon Snowden, and apologize. That's the path forward. Okay. All right, y'all. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a hell of a lot of fun because we are going to talk about dog shampoo, guys. Stay right there.
we're back, y'all. We are back. We are back. Um, let's talk about dog shampoo guy. Yay! <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. I'm going to enjoy this very much. The other day on Twitter, um, there was a character. You're going to see his name here. I'm forget. I'm blanking on it off the top of my head, but you'll see his name when I show you the clip. Um, there's this guy who's a journalist in, I think it's Toronto, and he tweeted that, I just realized I've been using dog shampoo for a very long time. And I can't believe I was doing that. It really doesn't help that they put dog shampoo in, like, the tiniest font imaginable. And then he showed a picture of the bottle. Dog shampoo is written in tiny font, but there was a giant picture of a dog on the bottle. (laughs) So anyway, this tweet blew up and everybody was like poking fun at him because why the fuck not? You know, it happens, man. I've been, I've been the target of this from time to time on Twitter when I say something dumb or when I say something that, uh, you know, people want to pounce on happens, man. That's life. That's life on Twitter. Everybody needs to grow a thick skin and get the fuck over it. It is what it is, but not this guy. He Went on Fox News. Now, this guy, Mark Stein, is trying out a new show here because they're trying to fill a time slot, and he's horrendous. But they decided to do a segment on, like, how terrible and evil cancel culture is. And they're going to use this as their go-to example. This is hilarious. Jonathan Kay is a senior editor at the online magazine Quillette, which is always an interesting uh, read. Over the years, he's written big, meaty essays on all the big subjects. War, pestilence, social justice, gender dysphoria, Inuit whale hunting. And none of it went anywhere until the other day when he did a throwaway tweet revealing that for the last three months he'd accidentally been washing his hair with his dog's shampoo. And next thing you know, big-time Hollywood stars Seth Rogen and small-time lefty hack Keith Olbermann and the rest of the blue checker were pounding on him. Jonathan Kay uh, joins us uh, tonight. Uh, Jonathan, as I think you put it in one of your tweets, uh, this, this escalated rather quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it was really strange. It, it was supposed to be this self-deprecating joke and, uh, you know, I, I tweeted it, and then I, I don't know, I think I walked my dog, and then I checked my phone, and it was like, Seth Rogen was <laughs> calling me names. It, it was a very surreal way to spend my Sunday morning. And then uh, that thing that happens that you really don't want when you're in a Twitter spat with Seth Rogen is that your mum decided to chip, up on, chip in on your behalf and suggest that he work this into a subplot for his next movie. And you didn't appreciate that. Well, <laughs> you know, it's not a good look uh, when family members jump in. Uh, but I was very disappointed in Seth. And by the way, I just, you know, at first, uh, you know, my response to him was like, look, maybe this guy's going through a bad thing. He got into spats with, with, with certainly people who are more famous than me, like Gad Saad and Rudolph Giuliani. And I was giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'd say, hey, look, I love your movies. You know, you know maybe you're having a bad weekend or something like oh. that. And, but, at, like, I 
kind of gave him the opportunity to say, hey, you know what, I have 9 million followers, and here I am chasing down some random Toronto journalist. You're right. I'm, I'm being stupid. I'm the one being stupid, but he, he, never, he never got to that point. Come on, dude. Come on, dude. Come on, bro. So the title on Fox News was some, like, you know, something making him out to be this big victim, like left-wing blue check Twitter pounces, you know, over with some cancel culture shit. Like, here we go again. Somebody's getting canceled. Um, when he says it was, it was meant to be a self-deprecating joke, that is complete bullshit, and we know it's bullshit. It wasn't a joke that he was in on. He was actually expressing this notion of, like, hey, I've been using dog shampoo, and that's not cool. They should increase the size of the font on the bottle, because how am I supposed to know it's dog shampoo? But there was a big-ass picture of a dog. And then he went on to say, like, for everybody saying, oh, there's a picture of a dog, so that's how you know it's dog shampoo, there's always pictures of something on shampoo bottles, like waterfalls and whatnot. So, like, how was I supposed to know that the picture of the dog means that it makes it dog shampoo? My dude, that's why people are pouncing on you. That's why they're pouncing on you. And, by the way, it's also not, like, they're making it seem like it's vitriolic. It's not vitriolic. People are joking and having fun because that's what happens. Listen, I'll tell you guys, I'm sure some of you watching this know this incident that happened with me, but there was a time a few years ago going to like Politicon or some shit or Joe Rogan, and we're flying over the middle of the country, and I look out the window, and I just see like the most gorgeous patterns and colors I've ever seen. And so I take a picture of it, and I tweet like, this is amazing. I have no idea what this is, but this is beautiful. Take a look. And it, it blew up on right-wing Twitter, and right-wing Twitter was like, ah, ah, Lefty doesn't know what farming is. Lefty doesn't know what farming is. He doesn't know farming. And like, okay, no, I know that farming is a thing, of course. The thing that was so fascinating to me is there were, it was like a, a bunch of different colors and bold colors. And I didn't see, there was no... There was no farming equipment. There were no roads. It was just the largest swath, with largest swaths of land you'd ever seen with all these beautiful colors. And really what I'm saying, I don't know what this is. I didn't know, like, what the fucking color, like, what are the colors for? Where, I still don't know what they are. I'll admit it. I don't know what the fuck they are. I, know, I see these beautiful shapes from a plane looking down at the middle of the country, and there's all these beautiful, gorgeous colors. I still don't know what the fuck the colors were. I'll admit it. But people were pouncing on me on right-wing Twitter. Idiot doesn't even know that farming is a thing. That's where your food is made, asshole. <laughs> okay, so you know what happened? I got over it. Nobody cares. Let them have their fun. Let them have their day, right? It is what it is. I didn't go on MSNBC or on whatever, the Young Turks or, or some other show and be like, I was canceled by the mob. I was canceled by the mob, and it hurts. It hurts so much. I didn't do that because I'm not a child. When you're in a hole, stop digging, son. So you know what? Hold the L. It is what it is. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if he deleted the tweet, but if he did, that's a mistake. Never delete the tweet, ever. That's got to be your act of defiance. Also, you said it. Own it. You know? I said it. Own it. Own it. Own it. That's what an adult does. But oftentimes you see people run for the hills and hit delete. Me? I never 
I never said anything that was slightly interesting or different ever. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Why would I say I was anything that was interesting or different? <laughs> interesting and different is bad. So anyway, when you're in a hole, stop digging. This isn't a cancel culture thing. This is like you tweeted something inadvertently hilarious, and now people are saying, hey, that's really hilarious. That's it. It's like, and here's the main point, guys. They love this, like, victim culture narrative. They always accuse the left of buying into this victim culture narrative and, like, you guys are just doing the oppression Olympics. One person wants to be a bigger victim than the next on the left. All you care about is victimhood. And then the second they feel like they can get away with crying and pretending to be the victim, they do it. As evidenced by the dog shampoo guy. You're not a victim, dog. You're not. I was really disappointed that Seth Rogen made fun of me. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Why would I give a fuck? That's actually kind of funny. The dog shampoo tweet was objectively hilarious, and not because it was a self-deprecating joke on your part. It was hilarious because you couldn't fathom that a big-ass picture of a dog's face means it's dog shampoo. Okay. Next. Next, baby. We're going to talk a little bit about QAnon and how you deconvert people. This is really interesting to me. A former QAnon supporter went on CNN and is going to explain how it's possible to deconvert people like her. So, Melissa, what is your advice to other people who have, may have a family member or friends who have fallen into QAnon? You know, I speak to people every day, family members, who say, what, you know, what advice can you give my friends? Can you talk to my, my loved one, my sister, my mother? And it's, it's heartbreaking. It gives me chills just thinking about it because I know that these people have to be empowered to make the conscious choice to leave the cult themselves. The more that people, you know, berate them, call them names, call them stupid, you know, laugh at them, mock them, they are just going to dig their heels in harder and become more isolated, more scared, and more alone. So my advice is to love these people, understand these people, try to come to even ground and reason with them as best you can, find things, common ground, things that you can agree on, and start there, and really try to isolate what their fears are and what's motivating their rational behavior and obsession with QAnon because what, what, what you'll probably find out is it is motivated by fear, distrust, you know, uncertainty, not necessarily hatred, not necessarily destruction, but these people can be helped, but they have to be empowered to do so. Well, that is such good advice to make compassion and focus on their fears. This clip is actually very informative. So how do you approach people that have some sort of extreme ideology? And this actually doesn't just apply to people with extreme ideologies. It applies across the board. Um, in my opinion, it all, it all comes down to intentions and whether or not they have bad faith or good faith. If somebody's acting in good faith, whether they're a QAnon believer or fill in the blank with whatever ideology, however extreme you want to go, if they're approaching it in good faith and it's not like, literally genocidal, well then, you have to treat it like she described, which is these people, a lot of people feel isolated, they feel alone, 
This is coming from a place of fear and distrust and uncertainty. And so you have to meet sincerity with compassion and you have to almost reassure them and let them know that I don't think you're actually a bad person. I'm not attacking you as a person. I'm, I'm, I want to discuss these ideas with you and see what you really believe, and I'll tell you what I really believe, and I'll give you evidence for my worldview. And so I'll treat you like a human, and I'll treat you like an adult, where I'm not going to immediately break out the shame tactic, you know, this finger-wagging and, and overly moralizing sentiments. I think that that's where people shut down immediately. That if you attack them, if you attack their being for what they believe, then they're immediately going to shut down and they're going to tell you to go fuck yourself. You know? Um, but again, if you, if you recognize that a lot of people who have extreme beliefs are isolated alone, they're fearful, they distrust the dominant narratives, which actually is fair, you know, it makes sense to distrust the overarching narratives and the conventional wisdom. They just maybe come to the wrong conclusions um, and they have uncertainty. If you approach these people and you, you soak all that in and adjust accordingly, you'd be surprised how many minds you can change. So, but now on the flip side of that, if somebody has bad intentions in the sense that they're acting in bad faith, then I say unleash the hounds. You know what I mean? So in other words, when you talk about some ghoul elected Republican politician who's swimming in money from the military industrial complex and Wall Street and you name it with the special interests, when it's a corporate Democrat who's swimming in money from the military industrial complex and Wall Street and like they're, they're really serving those donors above and beyond their constituents, in a situation like that, that person doesn't have good intentions. They don't have good faith. They're deeply corrupt, and they've sold out. And so in that instance, no, you don't meet them with kindness and compassion. You call it out for what it is and say you're a bad actor. And so break out that shame tactic, that shame technique. Rub it in their face. You know what I mean? Like, you're my enemy. No holds barred. I'm going after you. That's when you use those techniques. But for everybody else, if they're coming from a place of good faith and good intentions, and they just happen to go down a rabbit hole where they believe some things that are wacky. It takes a totally different approach. It takes an open-minded, open-hearted approach, and it takes engaging like human beings. And again, people can wind up in some very kooky places. QAnon is as kooky as it gets. You know, there's a lot of ideologies out there that are as kooky as it gets. But I actually have a decent amount of faith that deconversion is possible in a very large percentage of people. There's always going to be the TFGs, the too far gone, but more people have hope than you think, you know, and it's just a matter of engaging with it in a productive way. I'm reminded of, what's his name, Daryl something. The guy, he's a black guy, and he was able to deconvert white people from the KKK. And he did it in the most common sense way imaginable, which is like, let me talk to him. Let me talk to him. Let me see what they're thinking. I'm going to tell them what I'm thinking. And I'll just... Let me leave the harsh judgments and the character attacks totally aside. And let's just look at this almost like a science experiment and see how far we can go. And then he was able to deconvert a large number of these people. You know? So if, if that can happen, if a black man can deconvert some people from the KKK, there's a large percentage of people who can be deconverted from extreme ideologies. 
So it's just a matter of how do you do that. And uh, you guys know this. I say it all the time that my proudest thing about this show is when I go to an event like Politicon or I'm out somewhere and somebody tells me, hey, man, I used to be a Shapiro fan or I used to be a Crowder fan or in some instances, you know, I used to be alt-right and now I'm not. And the reason I'm not is because of you. Nothing makes me feel better than that. And interestingly, she actually alluded to this too. The thing that seems to be the most effective is when you're willing to be intellectually honest enough to concede a point where they already agree. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of overlap when it comes to the issue of Julian Assange, for example, where you have like the libertarian right and some far right elements who want to see him pardoned. But you also have many on the left who want to see him pardoned. So the fact that there's already a point of agreement makes them go, hey, he's obviously not totally crazy. So why don't I listen to him on other topics as well? And then there's a process and then you're off to the races. So in other words, there's a lot of power in giving credit where it's due. If you're one of these people who literally always, it's always black or white and there's never any gray area and you never give credit where it's due, well, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're never going to get more people to agree with you. And you're also just not engaging honestly at that point. If you can't say, hey, I disagree with you on 80% of stuff, but here's the 20% where we agree, then you're just being intellectually dishonest and you want to play this partisan game of like, you're my complete enemy and you're my complete ally, which is silly because nobody 100% agrees with anybody and nobody 100% disagrees with anybody. So anyway, that tactic of just being honest and giving credit where it's due usually let, makes people go, oh, that's curious. So may, I'll, I'll hear this guy out in other ways too, even when he disagrees with me. So then you're off to the races. It's a snowball effect and you can change minds. So I think this clip is really important and really interesting because it's somebody who was deep in QAnon, was deconverted, and now they're saying this is how it gets done. And I think the advice is totally sound, but unfortunately, most people will ignore it. And most people will not approach it with this kind of open-minded view. Okay, now, Neera Tandon time, baby. Here we go. So Neera Tandon was picked for OMB director. It's a very important uh, position as it pertains to the budget. And she was questioned about the issue of money in politics. Um, now, as I'm talking to you now, Bernie Sanders just did his questioning of Neera Tandon, and he had similar questions. But this is from the other day, and this was actually Republican Senator Josh Hawley prodding on the same issue. Take a look. Uh, Ms. Hannah, thanks for being here. Congratulations on your nomination. Let me start with a question about corporate special interests, if I could. Mm -hmm. This question relates to your broad view, I think, of, uh, of the economy and society. Let me just ask you, do you think that Wall Street and big tech companies have too much influence in our economy and society today? Yes. I also, I'm glad you say that. I, I agree with you. And I've talked for years now about these concentrations of power, how they stifle competition, hurt small business, and ultimately hurt working people. I want to ask you about uh, 
report uh, from the New York Times and other outlets suggesting that you solicited tens of millions of dollars in donations from Wall Street and Silicon Valley companies as president of the Center for American Progress, including very large contributions from Mark Zuckerberg. I understand that in early 2019, Senator Sanders actually wrote to your organization suggesting that these corporate interests may be inappropriately influencing your work. Can you just give us a sense of how you will, if you're confirmed as OMB director, how you will advocate for working people, given this history of soliciting tens of millions of dollars from the biggest and most powerful corporations on the planet? Senator, the role of OMB is to serve the public, and I am 100% committed to that role. And let me say that, uh, just to be clear, I believe that the Center for American Progress took funding from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, not Mark Zuckerberg directly, but I completely take the point about uh, uh, concerns about funding. And I can commit to you that uh, I will always uphold the highest ethical standards. I will work with Twitter folks at OMB to make sure I do so, but I will also say that uh, no policy or position I have taken has been determined by the financial interests of any single person. $665,000, I think, for the personal foundation of Mr. Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. uh, millions of dollars from Wall Street financiers, big banks, foreign governments, Silicon Valley, a million dollars from the managing partner at Bain Capital, $2.5 million from the UAE. That was between 2016 and 2018. Given this record, uh, how can you ensure us that you'll work to see if these Silicon Valley and Wall Street firms don't exercise undue influence, frankly, influence that they've already got in the making of government policy and the control of our economy. I mean, what, how can you assure us that you're going to be an independent actor when you've been so close to them to have raised so much money over all these years? I, I really appreciate that question. And I would say um, I and Center for American Progress aggressively take, take on the positions, take on the um, role of Facebook and tech companies have uh, called for higher taxes in companies, regulations of Wall Street, uh, uh, financial transaction tax. I'm proud of the record of the Center for American Progress and policies that will limit the power of Wall Street, limit the power of tech companies. I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you and work with you on those ideas because I do agree with you that, uh, that uh, corporate special interests have too much power in our discourse. And so whether it's a financial transaction tax or other proposals, obviously I take on my role as OMB director would be one in which I follow the, uh, follow the tax policy of the president. But it is my orientation that we, should, we need to rebalance power in our economy. And I hope there are ways you and I can work together in these arenas. Good. I'll hold you to that. Thank you. So this is the way she's approaching this is hilarious because anybody who knows anything about Neera Tandon knows she is, knows she is extremely online all the time, and she, she quite literally tweets more than Trump. I mean, Trump's obviously gone now, but when Trump was on, she tweeted more than Trump. She was extra online, and she was always getting in Twitter fights nonstop. And, um, you know, she very famously was Bernie's harshest and, like, least fair critic, big on spreading the Bernie bro myth, and they're all misogynists and racists, and it's bad. It's bad. But, like, now that she's sniffing power, she's right there to get real power, what do you say? She totally starts doing 
the tap dance in the Kabuki theater as she's getting grilled with legitimate questions, by the way. She's like, I really appreciate that question. She goes on to talk endlessly. I, I love bipartisanship. I'd love to work with people who disagree and reach across the aisle. And I'm a very open-minded and open-hearted person. Yeah. So she's, she's saying the things that she thinks she has to say in order to get the job. That's what we're watching right now. We're watching like a gross job interview where, but we have like her long record of the things she really says. And we know the things she really believes. Now, by the way, before I continue, let me just say, Hawley's a fraud. Hawley's a fraud. This was a great line of questioning, but he's a fraud. So he pretends like he's a populist. He's not really a populist. The most credit you can give him is pushing for those $2,000 checks and working with Bernie Sanders on that. I'd like to see a lot more of that kind of stuff, but don't get it twisted. The dude's for right-to-work laws, which it's anti-union legislation, um, so not pro-worker in that sense. This is a guy who was for a number of outsourcing deals, so so much for, you know, Mr. Populist. So there's a number of policy positions where he's sort of a standard Republican, but he, he postures as a more populist Republican. So this was a great line of questioning, but the point is just know who Josh Hawley really is. But anyway, back to Neera Tandon. Listen, in 2019 alone, Neera Tandon and the Center for American Progress, they accepted anywhere from $100,000 to $500,000 from Amazon, Facebook, Google, J.P. Morgan, Microsoft, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. And oh, I'm sorry, some of them gave 50 to 100,000. But that's who's giving to the Center for American Progress. So the real purpose of the Center for American Progress, just so you know, especially further back you go, the idea was it's Hillary Clinton's shadow government. And if slash when, they thought when, Hillary gets elected, we need to make sure we've already bought influence. So that's why you see all these major corporations and all these wealthy donors, foreign governments too, they've given a tremendous amount of money to the Center for American Progress over the years. And the idea was when Hillary's elected, she's just going to go over to the Center for American Progress and just say, you know, you're all in my government now. And so they were already ahead of the game and already had bought the people that they needed to buy so that when Hillary's in there, they'll be able to get whatever they want. I mean, that was the whole idea of the Center for American Progress, you know. Um, and she says, I've never done anything that, you know, that revolves around the money, never done something for donors. Nonsense. With Neera Tannen, we actually have a number of direct cases of exactly this happening. So Center for American Progress took millions from Bloomberg, and then they stripped out uh, criticism of Bloomberg from a report on anti-Muslim bias. And of course, Bloomberg was doing the surveillance of Muslims in New York City. There was this big portion that was a giant criticism of Bloomberg. They took it out because Bloomberg gives them millions. I mean, that one's like the open and shut case. There's another one when it comes to Israel. They take plenty of money from pro-Israel donors, and then they silenced criticism of Israel at Think Progress. You know, Zed Jelani has incredible stories about similar things to this. She wanted an interview with Netanyahu, and they tamped down on criticism of Netanyahu. They've taken plenty of money from, like, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and they're, you know, the, the, what would have happened had Hillary gotten elected is exactly what you think. It's a giant, you know, festival of corruption, and they do the bidding 
of whoever their donors are. So that's the reality, man, on top of just her terrible policy position. She was in favor of cutting Social Security and Medicare uh, very openly on that side. There's the famous story about Libya, where in an email she casually said, we should bomb Libya, steal their oil, and use it to pay down the U.S. deficit. So you get stupid deficit hawkery and imperialism all in one. Um, I believe she was with the emails with Hillary Clinton where they're like, oh, the war in Iraq is like a business opportunity. They were talking about it as such. It, I mean, this is as bad as it gets, man. This is as bad as it gets. And it's really gross that Bernie Sanders would be the head of the committee that would effectively approve her. They should not at all, ever, by any stretch of the imagination, approve near a tandem. And if they do, that says quite a bit. Okay. I got more on Nira. Oh, boy. Nira Tandon's posting got her in trouble during her committee hearing to be OMB director. Um, I, have a, I have a take on this that might be a little surprising to people. Take a look. against Bernie and all of Bernie's supporters. She gets on into Twitter fights with the left on a regular basis. She probably fights with the left more than anybody. But of course, in this instance, it would have been honest if she didn't back down. I mean, look at the examples that were given. She called Susan Collins the worst. Okay, I don't see why that's a problem. Probably given... Whatever sparked that tweet had to be Susan Collins taking a shitty position, and so that's so tepid and fair that 
I can't even believe we're talking about it, called Tom Cotton a fraud. Totally. Um, Vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. (laughs) Not only is that correct, but that's funny. Um, Moscow Mitch is dumb because you guys know I think the whole Russia nonsense is totally made up. Um, But calling him Voldemort, yeah, I like that one. You can call Mitch McConnell Voldemort any day of the week in my book, and I like it a lot. So her reaction is, oh, I appreciate the question. I recognize the concern. I deeply regret and apologize for my language. You don't appreciate the question. You don't recognize the concern. And you shouldn't deeply regret or apologize for any of that stuff. But it's Neera Tandon. And Neera Tandon can sense that she's so close to getting real power. So she'll say and do whatever the hell she has to say and do in order to get that power. That's exactly what we're witnessing. It's crystal clear. It's right in front of us. And it's gross. And that's, that's the real takeaway from this story is that, I mean... They're all so full of shit. They're all so immensely full of shit. It's kind of stunning how full of shit they are. They will flip on a dime, man. It's just, it is instantaneous. What do I have to say? What do I have to do to get a little bit more power, a little bit more self-aggrandizement? What do I have to do? I'll do whatever you want. You want me to apologize for shit that I really shouldn't apologize for? Fine, I'll apologize for it. You want me to bulk? I think she bulk deleted tweets. That's some cuck shit. I'm sorry. That's as cuckish as it gets, man. I would respect it a lot more if she just owned it. Yeah, I said it. I kind of stand by. If you want to apologize for some of them, fine. If you can apologize for all that, you can apologize for saying that vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. If anything, that's too kind to Ted Cruz. Because you're admitting he might have a heart when he doesn't. So, you know, I just, the qualities I care most about, it's like honesty, sincerity, being genuine, candor, like these things are super important and they're a real judge of character. And you don't apologize for some of the most accurate things you've ever said. You just don't do it. And the fact that she's doing it means she's, of course, I mean, she's going to play the game. Let me play the game to get a little bit more power And um, it's just, it's part of the whole problem with Washington. Even the question from Rob Portman, it's like, Rob Portman? Rod Portman? Rob. I think it's Rob. Rob Portman. Doesn't matter. He's so irrelevant. Um, Anyway, he says, oh, your tone and you're, you're so aggressive with how you say these things. And there's a lot of incivility and division. And this is the exact sort of shit that they're obsessed with in Washington, which is why a lot of them hated Trump, even though he was the ultimate elitist. But, like, I don't think regular people care as much as they do. I just don't. The whole, like, decorum and civility nonsense. At the end of the day, all people want out of their politicians is to help make their lives a little bit better. Do the things you're supposed to do. Represent us. You know, rebuild the infrastructure, raise wages, fix health care, end the wars. That's what people want from D.C., but instead they continue all the shitty stuff, but then say, I promise as we keep fucking you, we'll do it in a way that seems very professional. Should have doubled down, Nira. I would have respected it, and I would be doing a segment giving her credit if she was like, I got to stand by most of what I said there. Let's be serious. 
That would have been gangster, but of course she didn't do it because she's near a tendon. Okay. Next. All right, let me give you the new number, which honestly should scare you. The new number should scare you. There's a new number that we just learned about. This is being reported in the Washington Post. And honestly, this should really bring Democrats back down to earth. That's what this story should do. So Republicans came within 90,000 votes of controlling all of Washington, D.C. 43,000 votes for president. Biden only won because of 43,000 votes. 32,000 votes for the House, and 14,000 votes for the Senate. 90,000 votes. It was everything. Again, 43,000 for president. Just so you understand, I'm pretty sure that means it was a tighter margin than 2016. I've read multiple different numbers for 2016, so I don't know which one is accurate, but I, I think the low one I read was like 70,000. 43,000 votes for president. That's what put Biden over the top. 43,000. If this doesn't scare you, you're not paying attention. And you know what this tells me? This tells me that the dynamics that we thought were most pervasive indeed are the most pervasive. So in other words, you still had the same problem in 2020 that you had in 2016. Namely, that it's really not all that compelling to just run a campaign and make your whole message be, that guy's bad. That guy's really bad. That guy's really evil. That guy's beyond the pale. I mean, come on, what are you guys going to do? You have no choice. You got to support me, right? That was Hillary's message. To an extent, that was Biden's message. I honestly think the fact of the matter is COVID made it so that Joe Biden won. And even with COVID, even with COVID and like the economy imploding, 43,000 votes was everything. What does that tell you, man? What does that tell you? People, I really do think that people now think that these sorts of things are inevitable. Like, well, of course it's going to be, you know, tight racist. Of course it's going to be like that. Why would you think that? When history tells us the exact opposite. I mean, you go back and look at the maps for some of FDR's wins, and there were a lot of them, might I add. The last time we had a social democratic leader He was so popular that they needed to implement term limits to make sure that social Democrats don't win forever. So, and listen, to be fair, Reagan had crushing victories too, right? So it's not just, you know, it's not just a a left thing, to be clear. But what if we actually gave people that same option that led to the original crushing victories? 
I don't think you'd have you'd you'd have a squeaker against a reality star buffoon who botched a pandemic and brought about a depression. I don't think that would happen. I think you could have crushed that guy. I think he was incredibly vulnerable. I think it's embarrassing that you win by 43,000 votes and you pat yourself on the back and think like, well, we nailed it and we don't need to adjust anything moving forward. I already told you, the new plan for 2022, QAnon. They're going to run on QAnon. You're going to run on QAnon? So in other words, the argument is, we're really smart and our opponents are really stupid. (laughs) We're college educated. They're not. (laughs) Stupid conspiracy theorists. Stupid conspiracy theorists. Why would you run on that? Why would you run on like looking down your nose at people? Appeal to their material interests. The reason why the Democrats picked up Georgia was because of the $2,000 checks. That's probably the biggest reason as to why they won there. Maybe that's the ticket. Deliver on the $2,000 checks. Get the vaccines out to, you know, effectively try to fix the pandemic. And that would lead to the victories. Do social democratic change. That would lead to victories. But no. Go right back to the QAnon stuff, the culture stuff, right? It's culture war stuff. And go right back to Trump bad, other side bad. And then, listen, we're going to have more nail-biter elections. Now, I don't don't want to oversell it here because the Republicans are in disarray. There's a civil war going on in the Republican Party, and it's only going to get worse. But, like, that makes it even more embarrassing for the Democrats that you have this opportunity and you're squandering it. Because they can't break free from the neoliberal corporatism, and they can't break free from the Trump bad, other side bad, we're the smart people, they're the dumb people. That's not enough. Not enough. That doesn't cut it. You should have crushed in this election. And if you ran in a way that was remotely social democratic, you would have done exactly that. Okay. Here we go, little bitch. Now we're going to talk about how right-wing judges are putting their middle finger up to the American people. Here we go. Right-wing judges are now aggressively coming out against the will of the American people. This story in Newsweek is infuriating. A South Dakota judge overturned a voter-approved constitutional amendment to legalize marijuana on Monday. Wow. Amendment A would have legalized marijuana for recreational use and was approved by over 54% of South Dakota voters last November. Republican Governor Christy Noem, a close ally of former President Donald Trump, opposed the legalization effort and moved to reject the amendment after it passed, arguing that it should be overturned on technical grounds. Circuit Judge Christina Klinger, Klinger, who was appointed by Noam in 2019, agreed with the governor and invalidated the amendment late Monday afternoon. Klinger's ruling asserted that the amendment dealt with more than one issue and was therefore a revision of the state's constitution rather than an amendment. Okay, so there's, actually, there's a lot to say about this, um, even on the legal side, not necessarily on the, the substance side, the policy side. Um, I think this is a Weasley argument when they didn't even, they could have had the same result by not using a Weasley argument, but they did the thing that gives us a terrible result and they used a Weasley argument. 
So the Weasley argument is they're arguing, well, something, something, the state constitution is the problem here, and that doesn't allow us to do it. The sense I get from reading everything on this is that's simply not true, that the vote should stand, and that is uh, an effective argument on the side of the people, that 54% of South Dakota voters approved it, and that that should stand. Here's the thing, though. And I know people are not going to want to hear this, but I'm giving you, from, from a legal perspective, the truth of the matter. If the court in South Dakota said, I'm striking this down, and I'm striking this down because of the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution and federal law overrides state law, and that's just the way it works, then that actually would have been totally legitimate. So in other words, it's right from a legal perspective, it's right from a constitutional perspective, even though it's the wrong side of the policy issue, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the overwhelming majority of people in the country and a small majority of people in South Dakota. So you understand why that's the case? It's actually really important that people get this. The way it works with the U.S. Constitution is we have the Supremacy Clause, which basically says when there's a, a conflict between state law and federal law, federal law wins. Federal law overrides state law. There's a very good reason for that. And if you think historically, more often than not, the federal government ends up being on the better side of, that, of these disputes. Not always, but most of the time it does. I mean, the best example of it is they were using the states' rights arguments all the time during the civil rights era, where states would say, no, the federal government doesn't have a right to come into our deep south state and say, no more segregation. We think we are free to do whatever we want in our state, including segregate. So the federal government can piss off. And the federal government responds and says, it doesn't matter what you think at the state level. We are the federal government. The law is you must desegregate. So now we're going to make you desegregate. Our law is the supreme law of the land. Federal law overrides state law. And in that instance, you would say, I would say, everybody would say, well, of course. You can't let the states do whatever they want if it's like segregation, right? And there's a, a number of examples, you know, with this same idea in mind. There was a, a famous case in one of the border states, I think it was Arizona, but don't quote me on that, that they were saying, hey, we're going to do our own border policy. So on our border with Mexico, we're going to build our own wall and do our own policy. And the federal government stepped in and said, you actually can't do that. Because the border is, that's, we have federal laws that apply to that, and our laws override your laws. So you can't do that. It's on us. And again, in that instance, what would you say? You'd probably say the same thing I would say, which is the federal government is correct, that they do have supremacy. So it is what it is. Now, the problem is, of course, there are instances where it does work in the other direction, where the states are taking the more progressive position and the federal government is not. Marijuana just happens to be one of those issues where it's still illegal under federal law. It's still a Schedule One drug. They could still crack down and lock people up over it. But we have so many states now where it's legal at the state level. Legal in California, legal in, you know, wherever you fill in the blank. There's so many of them now. And, like, the only reason that they're allowed to have these booming industries in these states is because the federal government is just being kind enough to let it continue, even though they're technically still breaking the law. So if they wanted to, they have the legal authority. The federal government has the legal authority to go in there and shut down all the, the medical marijuana and the legal recreational marijuana all around the country because it's still illegal under federal law. 
So and the whole point of me giving you the ins and outs and, and the legal angle of this is to say this. The fight is never done unless and until we actually get the laws right at the federal level. Joe Biden could today effectively legalize marijuana or at least decriminalize it all around the country. He just has to remove it from as a Schedule One substance and take it off the list completely or just make it a, a lower category. That's it. That's all he'd have to do. But until he does that, it's still technically illegal. And we're just allowing the states to continue to break federal law. Um, so anyway, now to come full circle to South Dakota here, the argument they're using is Weasley bullshit because they're saying, I don't know, this direct initiative, which went the way we don't like, we're going to say it's unconstitutional under the state constitution. That's nonsense. Nonsense. Um, but they would have been correct if they said, hey, the federal government doesn't allow this, so that's why we're slapping it down. That would have been true, and that would have been fair. So, but they have to, they have to change the law at the federal level. You could do it a number of ways. Like I said, Joe Biden could do it tomorrow. If Joe Biden's not going to do it tomorrow, make Joe Biden do it and pass a bill in the House to decriminalize or legalize marijuana. They should do legalization, but if you want to do baby steps, say, I get it, then do the decriminalization. That'll pass. And by the way, they're proposing something. And then we'll see what happens in the Senate. Maybe you even get it through the Senate. You might have the votes, man. If you can hold every Democrat, and then, of course, you get, like, Rand Paul and a couple handful of Republicans to flip. I mean, I don't know if you can get 60, but you might be able to get close. So we got to change the federal laws. And until we do that, we're just, you know fucking around at the state level here. The federal law is always going to override state law. So it's a shame. I wish the South Dakota judge did not do this, did not do this Weasley ruling. You know, I wish the federal government and the state government both were like, you know what, go ahead. We see what the people want. We're going to take a hands-off approach. That's not what happened. So now we just need more action at a higher level, namely at the federal level, legalize it or decriminalize it everywhere. Now we're going to talk about student loan debt. There's a Harvard lawyer by the name of Eileen Connor, and um, she's going to discuss here whether or not Biden has the legal authority to cancel student debt. Watch this. I'm going to talk about one simple question. Is it legal for President Biden to cancel student debt? The answer is yes. He can do it today without any other action by Congress. Let me explain why. Imagine you lend me $20. It's your $20. You can ask me to pay it back in full, in half, or not at all. Student debt cancellation works the same way. When someone takes out a federal student loan, they're borrowing money from the government, and the Constitution gives Congress the authority to control property of the government, such as debts owed to it. When Congress gave the Secretary of Education the authority to make or back loans, it also gave the Secretary the broad and unrestricted power to cancel or write down that debt. This power was established under the Higher Education Act in 1965. That law gives the Secretary of Education the authority to compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired. The Secretary also has the authority not simply to compromise debt, but to modify a student loan to zero. Secretary Betsy DeVos actually used this authority to cancel out a limited amount of student debt. Now, it's important to understand the purpose of the Higher Education Act. It was to make the benefits of higher education widely available, especially to those who otherwise couldn't afford it. 
Nobody else but the federal government was willing to lend to people with no credit history, no means, and only the chance at a bright future. But we decided to do it because education is so important to us as individuals and as a country. But the intent was not what we're seeing now, worsening the racial wealth gap, driving up costs, reducing affordability and access, and triggering a repayment crisis. The nation today has a $1.7 trillion student debt burden owed to the federal government by about 43 million Americans. At the Project on Predatory Student Lending, we represent over a million student borrowers who were cheated by for-profit colleges. And this is an industry that aggressively targets and scams people who are looking for jobs and careers in order to get its hands on federal student loan dollars. And their priority is enrollment, not education. We see how defaulting on student debt can cause poor credit, food insecurity, homelessness, inability to pay household debt, barriers to employment, and mental and physical health issues. It holds people back in their decisions to get married and have children or to do certain kinds of jobs that we as a country need doing. And this burden impacts the whole family, the whole community, the whole economy, not just the loan bearer. But we've also seen how debt cancellation can liberate Americans and their families. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, the government has paused federal student loan payments through September 2021. This has freed up households in this pandemic to spend money and help keep our economy going. And the ability to do that falls under the same authority to modify or outright cancel debt. In these examples and others, the law is clear. President Biden has legal authority to cancel student debt. And doing so is not an end, but a beginning of necessary change we need to invest in higher education in a different way so that millions more Americans are not cheated out of their futures and saddled with student debt that they can never repay. So it's not a question. There is not a question here. He 100% has the legal authority and the ability to cancel all student debt if he wanted to. He can do it. Now, what the administration is saying is actually kind of infuriating because they said, oh, Biden supports canceling up to $10,000 of student debt. That's it, only $10,000. And he thinks Congress should get to work on it ASAP. So he's punting. He's punting, which means he really doesn't support it because it ain't going to get through. So if it's not going to get through and you have the authority to do it and you don't do it, it means you don't want to do it. That's what it means. So, listen, here's where um, you need a strong left and you need an unapologetic left. Because, as we've discussed previously, there are tactics, there are tricks you can use to force his hand. And the, the easiest one, and I say easy in the sense that it's easy to understand, not that it's easy to pull off, it'd be difficult, but they still should do it, is put a block on everything unless he does it. Listen, we're not going to we're not going to allow anything through unless and until you cancel student debt. We'll block everything. All you need is a dedicated faction of justice democrats who are willing to fight. Sorry. We care so much about the 1.6 1.7 trillion dollars in student loan debt. We know how that's holding back a generation. We can eliminate that, and we're going to fight for these people because it's the right thing to do. 
And, okay, Joe, you don't want to do it? Fine. Well, then get comfortable with nothing ever getting done ever. We'll block everything. We'll block everything. Now, you want to be reasonable or you don't want to be reasonable? It's on you, bro. You can have things pass today. You can have things pass tomorrow. You just got to eliminate student loan debt, which you could do with the stroke of a pen. Go for it. Now, they're not going to do this. And it all goes back to the thing we've talked about a number of time, times, which is they have the right policy ideas, a lot of these people in D.C. on the left. Um, the problem is there is no leadership and there's no discipline. You would need a, a true leader to step up to say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to And guess what? We're going to take incoming fire from the White House. We're going to take incoming fire from the media and the Republicans are going to cackle and love the fact that we have a civil war going on. That's what's going to happen. But we need to stand strong because we're correct and we can win. You need leadership and you need discipline. You need discipline in the sense that you've got to be able to hold 12 or 15 of them and say, everybody hold the line. Don't you dare buckle on this. Don't you dare buckle. We're all one. We are all one. We act as a unit. And what we're doing right now is we are going to eliminate student loan debt. So that's what you need to do. But listen, it takes balls. It takes balls. It takes willing to be smeared relentlessly. You know, it, that's what it takes. And I don't think they have what it takes, if I'm being honest. You need leadership and you need discipline. Sorry, but the left does not have leadership and they do not have discipline. And, you know, some people come after me because I repeatedly point out that they're not corrupt. You don't like that I say that? Fine, you don't like that I say that. But I'm factually accurate, and you're not, if you say that they're corrupt. They don't take big money. They don't take corporate money. These are people who have the right policy ideas that agree with me 98% of the time, 99% of the time. So they're not my enemy. They're just incredibly weak, and they have no leadership, and they have no discipline. So... That's the, that's the reality of the situation. And so they let us down all the time. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You try. Now we need to try to get leadership in there and have these people have discipline. And thankfully, at least there's some path here and there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Because I do think that Nina Turner is going to provide a lot more leadership um, than anybody else would going to Congress. That's desperately what we're lacking on the left is leadership and balls and knowing, like, you want to attack me? Attack me. I don't care. I go through it all the time. Pelosi, hate me. Schumer, hate me. Biden, hate me. But I'm going to force you to eliminate student loan debt. I'm going to do that. That's what we need. But we don't have fighters. And there is no leadership and there is no discipline. And so until we get to that point, it's all talk. But now you know for sure. He, not me speaking. Harvard lawyer Eileen Connor, who's an expert on this, she's speaking. Biden has the ability to eliminate all student loan debt right now if he wanted to. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. Here we go, baby. Let's make fun of Fox and Friends because it's one of my favorite pastimes on this show. Fox and Friends is leaning into the culture war, which is what they do best. Let's see what they're mad about today. 
I was watching the Super Bowl. One of my favorite things about it was the national anthem. I mean, the whole thing was great. It was great during COVID just to watch that, the whole experience. But if you go to a Dallas Mavericks game now, you will not hear or be able to stand for the national anthem because they're not playing it anymore. They're not singing it anymore. Uh, 13 preseason and regular season games, and it's not been played in the athletic, which is a publication they they just realized this. No one else has really noticed it or said anything. It hasn't been in the press. That's true. Yeah. So the Athletic, uh, they write, this is the quote from, from that publication, the Dallas Mavericks have ceased playing the national anthem before home games this season and do not plan to play it moving forward. A decision made by the owner, Mark Cuban, the Mavericks did not publicize the anthem's removal. And Mark Cuban has declined to comment further on it, Brian. Yeah, I uh, texted him this morning. I also got this just You're cut and pasted. I cut and pasted. Um, uh, somebody, another uh, NBA owner, cut and pasted it and just said with no comment. Uh, also, this from Dan Patrick, uh, the lieutenant governor of Texas. The decision to cancel our national anthem uh, for the Dallas Mavericks is a slap in the face to every American and an embarrassment to Texas. Sell the franchise and uh, some Texas patriot will buy it. We are uh, uh, the land of the free and home of the brave. So he's obviously outraged. Imagine caring about this. Imagine giving a shit. I mean, basically the entire right-wing media ecosystem, for years and years, their whole go-to trick was to call everybody like a little triggered snowflake who gets worked up over nonsense culture war bullshit. That's exactly what this is. You're getting worked up over nonsense culture war bullshit. You're the triggered snowflake. Sorry to be continuing to use vernacular from frickin' 2014. These are also the same people who always say, we have to keep politics out of sports. When you have Colin Kaepernick kneeling, when you have LeBron making some sort of a political statement, they say, keep politics out of sports. Not only do they want politics in sports, they want it enforced from the top down. Which, by the way, is a total, totally different scenario because it's worse. It's worse. If you enforce politics from the top down, then people don't have a choice. In other instances, like Kaepernick kneeling, that's him deciding as a free person to do a peaceful protest. So they do want politics in sports. They just want their version of politics, and they want it enforced from the top down. Um, And I think that's clear. I think that's clear. So imagine in the middle of a pandemic and a depression, this is what you're spending time on, on your morning news show. Oh my God, you want to say the National Anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance. Why, okay, I, I hate to burst everybody's bubble now if you don't understand this yet. That's authoritarian horseshit. It is. It is what it is. And you don't believe me? Do, do uh, an intellectual exercise where you take out the United States and put it in any other fucking country. Imagine if at the beginning of a school day, You stand up and say a pledge of allegiance to that flag. They do that in Iran. You'd look at it and be like, oh, that is fucking creepy, isn't it? What are they doing? Pledging support to a flag? What if the country that the flag represents does something wrong? Are you not allowed to criticize it? Now, that's Pledge of Allegiance. But National Anthem, same shit. Some, like, overly patriotic song. What are you doing? It's a sporting event. It's sports. Now, they, he already was not having the national anthem the entire season. The only reason why now people are talking about it is because um, 
this is the first time you have some fans, like a limited number of fans who are allowed in the building. And so now they're noticing, like, oh, this is shit. There's no national anthem. Who cares? Who cares? But this is Fox. By the way, oldest trick in the book. Get you worked up over culture war bullshit so that they continue to wage the class war and the economic war and continue to screw working people. If they can get you really worked up and angry over the pledge or abortion or whatever, religious shit, remember when it was prayer in school was the big thing? That was a long time ago, by the way. But if they get you worked up over that, then they could continue to run out the back door with all the money, with subsidies for the wealthy, tax breaks for the wealthy. I mean, that's the way it works. And, if, you know, I'm not the one who figured this out. We're talking about um, Thomas Frank's what's the matter with Kansas, like core argument. That's what it is. And so Fox is still the best at engaging in this. For an outlet that only represents the will of corporations and billionaires, they sure do a good job of using bullshit issues to appeal to some working class folks who don't realize they're getting had. So I can't imagine being upset that they're not playing the national anthem at a sporting event. I mean, but there are people out there who will be worked up over this. And uh, it's just, I just feel bad. It's just sad. It's genuinely sad. The best way to support your country, here's one. Fight for everybody to have health care in said country. I love my country so much, I don't want to see 45,000 to 60,000 people die every year because they don't have basic health care. That's how much I love my country. I love my country so much, I wanted to end the offensive wars that we're waging. That's how much I love my country. I love my country so much that if I were running for president, one of my top issues, either my number one or my number two issue, would be an American deal, which is a new infrastructure deal, which would make our infrastructure the best in the world by far. It would give us a grade of A+. We'd destroy the world. We'd be the best in the world by far when it comes to our infrastructure. That's how much I love my, my country, that I want to rebuild it. I want to make it better. I want to end the wars. I want to save lives. I want to increase freedom. I would do that by legalizing marijuana. This is, that's how much I love my country. If you think the metric as to whether or not you love your country is a dumbass authoritarian song at the beginning of a sporting event, you lost the plot, son. Okay. All right, y'all, we are done, baby. This week, I am super excited. This week, Andrew Yang, Crystal Kyle and friends. It's going to be fun. He's not in studio. He has COVID. It's a really good reason not to be in studio. Uh, but he, uh, he'll be remote, and it'll be beautiful. So everybody, check it out. Crystal Kyle and friends, you're going to love it. And I love all of you, and I'll talk to all of you soon. Peace. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.